sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love, the government of the government love, the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. After my interview with Mila Atmos, Trey will join me for a conservative perspective. My guest today is Mila Atmos, host of the most excellent Future Hindsight podcast. It's a it's a great show, and I think it's she's doing some really important work there. And so I am very pleased to be talking with her today. Uh, Mila, welcome to the show. Thank you, and thank you for those kind words. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so I thought the best place to start would be, instead of me giving a long introduction about what the Future Hindsight is about, that you could maybe start by telling listeners a little bit about your background and Future Hindsight, and, you know, why you started it, what it's about, that sort of thing. Sure. So, uh, you know, uh, one of the reasons I started is that because during the 2016 election cycle, I felt like we were missing a lot of context in the media, that uh, what we really heard about was outrage both on the left and the right. But we didn't actually talk about the issues and we didn't really talk about why we should elect one candidate over another and uh, what their policy proposals were for our country. And I thought, you know, we really need to have more of that kind of conversation. And not only did I feel that we needed to have more context about the issues, I also felt like even if we are having conversations about issues, they're incredibly shallow and uh, one-dimensional. And so I wanted to really talk about what are the issues really about? And if we talk about the issue for half an hour as opposed to, you know, just read the headline of an article, what are we going to discover about what's possible in terms of the public interest? So yes. that, that's what I really, what I really admire about your show is the depth, not only the depth, but uh, almost, I mean, pretty much all of the episodes are things that are, that retain their value over time and in a, in an area, in an era where so much of our political discourse is so, well, ephemeral, I guess, what what you're doing. That's why I think it's so important because I believe it has enduring value. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I hope that I'm really providing that because it's so complicated. It doesn't it doesn't appear to exist any other place. And I I often when I see uh articles about issues or see news reports, I always have questions. Like, but what about this question? How come this question wasn't asked? Or about this issue? How come we didn't talk about that? And so I wanted to have this, my own show, where I would ask those <laughs> questions. <laughs> or at least I thought, well, you know, if nobody else is going to ask those questions, maybe I should. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, now, now, in terms of issues that people are talking about these days, and also have deeper importance, uh, I think one of the main ones, or the main one, is obviously impeachment. And uh, uh, politics guys listeners know how I feel about this issue because we've been talking about it so often. But uh, briefly, I, I believe that President Trump has really committed multiple impeachable offenses. Uh, but unfortunately, that House Democrats just haven't yet built a strong enough case and have decided for political reasons to not do that. And But also that far too many people on both sides of the aisle have basically made up their minds before hearing any evidence. That's kind of my brief take. Uh, uh, Emil, what, what's, your, what's your view, kind of broader view on, on the impeachment process, at least to this point? Uh, so I agree with you that he has committed multiple impeachable offenses. Uh, and I actually think that the process has been surprisingly good. I really thought that the hearings... Uh, that Adam Schiff led were quite eye-opening. Uh, and so my background is in foreign policy. I, uh, I uh, studied international security in graduate school, and so I pay a lot of attention to uh, matters of foreign policy. And so uh, I was really struck by the testimony of people like Dr. Hill, Ambassador Yovanovitch, uh, Ambassador Taylor, just how clear they were and also how patriotic they were in terms of stepping out and really laying out the facts. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree entirely. And, you know, it reminds me, there used to be an old saying that uh, politics stops at the water's edge. Now, that was never obviously entirely true, certainly. But one thing that's really disturbed me about this entire process is how how this seems to be in some way almost playing into the hands of one of our main strategic adversaries. And that, of course, is Russia and seeing the Republican Party, which one would think historically was very anti uh, anti Russia, anti-Soviet, basically uh, making arguments that seem to actually bolster Russia and Putin. I mean, is that is that is that your your sense of it as well? Yes, 100 percent. I think we are totally playing into their hands. My guess is that Putin is having a glass of champagne every day celebrating how this is <laughs> this is working out way better than he thought it would. Uh, so, in fact, I think he's probably surprised that um, that Trump won the election. Yeah. You know, I think his goal was to destabilize the American democracy and uh, he succeeded. I guess I can understand Donald Trump putting his own personal uh, uh, fortunes, I guess you can say, above that of national security. But what's what's more disheartening to me is how many Republicans seem in Congress seem willing to almost happily go along. Is that was that surprising or, or shocking to you? No, not at this point. <laughs> I mean, three and a half years into this presidency. No, yeah. not anymore. Right. But uh, I will say that I am shocked by how far some people have gone and that they will just uh, take on complete talking points uh, from Russia, which, you know, Dr. Hill warned us against. Right. And And I just thought, why is nobody paying attention to, to that? Why do they just keep on going? I also felt that the way that uh, they conducted themselves in the hearings, which were just, you know, being obstructionist and shouting and not really making any points, I thought uh, was really damaging to the Republican Party in terms of what it looked like on television. Yeah. So, you know, I I feel that it's it's hard for me to understand anyone who would look at any of the evidence and say that there's at not at least enough there to uh, to impeach the president, which, again, is just it doesn't remove him from office, just gets to that point where there's a trial in the Senate. But I've also said that if I were a senator at this point, I wouldn't vote to convict the president, and remove him from office. And that's that's because I have a very high, what you might call, evidentiary standard uh, in that I think there needs to be an incredible amount of, of, I need to be absolutely certain before I would vote to remove a president from office uh, before his term is ended. And so I was wondering what your take was on this. If you were in that position with the evidence we have now, how would, how would you vote and, and why would you go in that direction? Well, I would definitely vote to convict and remove him. And I think the evidence that we heard so far is pretty clear cut. I don't think that there's anything else more to see. Of course, it would be really helpful for us to hear directly from John Bolton as opposed to in a book that he wants us to buy. I think that's totally <laughs> wrong. I mean, what's that all about? Yeah. Uh, you know, or um, Mick Mulvaney. You know, I think there are some deep problems here. The fact that these people are uh, not giving testimony, I think, is is really troubling. And I think doesn't bode well for the president. You know, if he really wants to exonerate himself, he should make those people testify and prove his innocence. But the fact that he's not doing that really makes me deeply suspicious that really there is nothing else here. Everything that we know is already out. It's true. It's indisputable that he has abused his public office, not only for his private gain, but for his personal political gain, which I think is even more troubling than just pocketing some money. You know, uh, I think it's it's so egregious. It's it's uh, it's impeachable. And I think he needs to be removed. 
Now, of course, the president's response to the, uh, the t- uh, issue of test- testifying, or at least having uh, uh, people like Bolton and Mulvaney or even Giuliani testify, is that, well, this is something I am doing not just for myself, but for future pref- presidents. I am protecting this idea of executive, executive privilege. Uh, what do you think about that argument? Well, um, I think that Congress needs to assert itself here and uh, really be a co-equal branch of the government and demand accountability on behalf of the people. And uh, if it doesn't do that, I think it's a, it's a problem for the American people because if we don't uh, do it now, then, then what is going to be the threshold? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly, I have been uh, very reluctant uh, to support the idea of impeachment, but I feel that if, if it is going to be done, it should be done in a, in a very complete and full way. And that, I guess that's part of my frustration is that uh, it almost seems to me that, that my party, the Democrats, they've, they've sort of decided to not, uh, not push the court cases to force these folks to uh, to testify, but to kind of go ahead with impeachment before they before we hear get resolutions on this. Uh, but but I guess you feel that that's not problematic because there's enough evidence as is. Is that right? I think it's problematic that we're not pursuing it more vigorously. Although it's not that they aren't, uh, it's just very slow. Right. Yeah. And uh, I know that they're also pursuing in the courts other evidence about. Um, the accounting irregularities with Mazars and also the papers from Deutsche Bank. So I think those things are those things might still come out before the end of the year, before they write up the articles of impeachment. Those might still come out. Uh, but I also think that they have taken maybe a page from Mueller to say, look, at the end of the day, we have plenty of evidence. And if we can't get everybody, every single person, let the record show we tried and they refused, and they obstructed. So I think there's something to be said about that as well, yeah, even I, though it's not perfect. Yeah, I, I, I certainly think at least in terms of bringing in some of the some of the material that Robert Mueller put together, because it seems to me pretty clear that he felt that the president uh, did some things that while he was not prepared to say he would he would indict him or he didn't feel he had the power to, that they certainly uh, uh they bore further investigation by Congress. It's, he all but I think all but said that in his in his report. That's right. So I am sure that in the articles of impeachment, they will include some of the findings from the Mueller report. And in fact, I think that some of the stuff that they've done since the Mueller reporting, for example, following the money, uh, I think are totally in keeping with the rec- rec- with the recommendation of the Mueller report and will definitely uh dovetail into the impeachment articles. And I don't know how much of it will be there because I think there is a fine line to be drawn between including too many things and not enough things. And so I'm sure they're having many conversations about that in Congress. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, What do you think about, and you've heard this argument, it actually, uh, I think it's fairly it's going to be more common as time goes by that, well, you know, we're going to have a presidential election anyway. And isn't it better to just let the people decide as opposed to having, you know, just a, a very small, unrepresentative sample in Congress make this decision? Uh, wh- what do you think about that argument? Well, I have two responses. One is that um, if you support impeachment or if you don't support impeachment, you should let your member of Congress know. You should pick up the phone, make a phone call and say you are a constituent in his or her district and you support or you don't support. And I think your congressperson, your member of Congress needs to know that. So I think it is not that they're making this decision without input from the people if we don't actually do it. So I think that's that's upon us to do. And the second thing is that I also happen to come uh, from a deeply corrupt country. I'm originally Indonesian. I'm a naturalized citizen. And Indonesia is a kind of place where there is no accountability for leaders. You know, when I was growing up there as a child, we had a dictator. Uh, he was commonly referred to internationally as a benign dictator, which doesn't mean that there weren't extrajudicial extrajudicial killings or that there wasn't a war happening in East Timor that we never heard about if we lived in Indonesia, you know. Uh-huh. So I kind of feel like, well, you know, this is not the kind of thing that's supposed to happen here in this country, in the United States, a nation of laws. And I think that if we don't hold 
the president accountable here of all places. This is a terrible president for uh, democracy all over the world. Yeah, I, I certainly I certainly agree with that. Uh, but but there's also a, a, another viewpoint. Speaker Speaker Pelosi actually at one point uh, earlier this year in March uh, said, you know, that she felt that if we shouldn't be pursuing impeachment because it was so divisive to the country that uh, unless there's something so compelling and overwhelming and bipartisan, I don't think we should go down that path. Now, it seems like I would argue that it sure seems compelling and overwhelming, but one thing it doesn't seem is bipartisan. And that's a, that's a difference, certainly, uh, that, that's worth talking about. Well, what do, you, what do you think about that? Do you feel that the potential divisiveness of going through this without any kind of bipartisan support uh, outweighs the importance of, uh, of doing this as a matter of, uh, I guess you could say, uh, justice? You know, um, that's an interesting question. I think that it matters to the American people, maybe not right now, but 20 years from now, 30 years from now, when we look back at this time, whether Congress did the right thing, whether it was expedient or not, or whether it was bipartisan or not. Because like I said, if this is a nation of laws, this is still the right thing to do. And if one party doesn't believe that, which I really find difficult to believe, you know, I really feel that a lot of uh, Republican Congress members have been compromised in this, that they are not really speaking for how they really feel inside. Uh, and, and I'm just guessing. I just can't believe it. You know, I think reasonable people uh, all over the spectrum can see that there are some things that are deeply wrong with what happened. I think it will, I think we will be judged as a people if we don't do it. And I think that's something that looms very large for people who are serving, I think for people who are paying attention to this. And I know a lot of people really aren't, even though we talk about it all the time. Uh, people like you and me, because we pay a lot of attention. But, you know, I talk to people uh, at my gym or um, even at school. And some people are like, you know what, I, I can't be bothered to pay attention. My life is full. I'm busy and all that. And so it's uh, it's very shocking. But I think that's how it is. Yeah. On your show, you focus a lot on civic engagement and how citizens can be change makers. And I want to try to apply that to this particular issue. I mean, there are a lot of people, I think, who feel, uh, even engaged people who feel that, well, this seems to be a, a, a done deal, uh, that, uh, that uh, the impeachment vote is, we, we pretty much know what it's going to be, this president is going to stay in office. And so, What's the point in following it and being engaged? Now, I know you have a you have a different you have a different view on that. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about about that and how you feel people can make a difference and why they should try to do that when it comes to this. Right. So I believe that this is not a done deal. Uh, And I believe that because you know humans are humans are complex, right? And so there are numerous upsets when you watch sporting events. And even when we look back at our very own election in 2016, we all thought that Hillary had it in the bag. And so a number of us, many numbers of us decided not to vote because we were confident that she was going to win it. And then she didn't. And so all this to say, we really don't know what the future holds. (laughs) We really have no idea, you know. Uh, And so if we really want to make a difference, I think we should get active. We should demand that our members of Congress listen to us, whether it's your representative in the House. Like I said earlier, you can tell them if you want them to support or not support articles of impeachment. If the, if you have a senator uh, that you uh, feel must hear from you. I mean, I think, uh, you know, if in my case, for example, Gerald Nadler actually represents my district, so I don't think I need to necessarily contact him. (laughs) But at the same time, I'm sure that he appreciates that when he hears that there are constituents who support the work that he does. So I think that goes for everybody. And I and, uh, you know, uh, one of my favorite podcast episodes was with uh, Brad Fitch of the Congressional Management Foundation. And he basically said that, you know, members of Congress listen to their constituents. They want to hear from their constituents and not only on hot button issues, but of course, in this case, necessarily on hot button issues. But when you engage with your member of Congress, 
they are obliged to actually take a tally and, and understand how many people want something. And to illustrate uh, by example, for example, is um, during the Obama administration when he wanted to send a warning to Syria, the red line that Syria crossed after they bombed their own citizens with chemical weapons. You know, he went to Congress and Congress heard overwhelmingly from their constituents that they didn't want to go and engage in Syria. And so they didn't. So uh, I think it works. You know, we just have to do it and we can't be cynical about it. I mean, we are cynical, about yeah. it, but all I'm saying is that if we're only cynical about it, then, you know, then there is really no hope. Right. And, and so uh, I think all of us should participate and make our voices heard. And uh, when we don't do that, then um, we have only ourselves to blame in a way. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. Uh, Let's let's talk about a little bit about the other big issue that everyone is focusing on other than impeachment. And that's, of course, the 2020 presidential race where there's this huge Democratic feel, although two high profile candidates have already dropped out. And it's more, most recently uh, Kamala Harris. And before that, uh, Beto O'Rourke, who I should point out, you interviewed on your podcast and people should definitely check that out. But at this point, it seems like there are four candidates who have really separated themselves from the rest of the the pack of, I think, 15 or so, I don't know at this point, but Biden, Warren, Sanders, and Buttigieg. And for a lot of Democrats, I think, the main focus is choosing somebody who has the best chance of beating Donald Trump in November. But then you have other folks, uh, maybe more progressives, who say, you know what, this is going to be a very hollow victory. If the person that we elect, assuming that person wins, isn't committed to really transformative change. And I was wondering, do you do you have a camp here or what do you think about this? You know, that's a great question. Uh, I don't think it's a hollow victory to unseat Donald Trump. So (laughs) I think we can start there. But having said that, do we need transformative change? Yes. And, uh, you know, watching the DNC do this nomination process, I have come away feeling that uh, what the DNC wants most than anything is to nominate Biden. And uh, I feel like they're quarterbacking this guy all the way to the nomination uh, come hell or high water. I mean, I might be wrong, right, in terms of what the outcome is. Yeah. But I know that this is their preferred candidate. That much is clear. And so in terms of electability, I think we'll just have to see when people actually start voting uh, in Iowa, in New Hampshire, in South Carolina, in Nevada, you know, Super Tuesday. Until people start voting, we don't know who's electable. But if you look by records, for example, how many people have voted for whom, you know, Kamala Harris had seven and a half million votes in California. And if you compare that to somebody like Pete Buttigieg, who won his seat uh, as the mayor of South Bend by 8,500 votes, you know, yeah. then, you know, you can have a different kind of conversation. But this is a different race. And people have been running since uh, earlier this year. And I think what we need to do now is just give them a chance and see who votes for whom, who gets the most votes, because it could be that Joe Biden runs away with it, but it could be that he doesn't. Yeah. Well, you know, it's an interesting comment you made about uh, Biden seemingly, and I would agree with it, being the the DNC's uh, choice. Uh, and of course, we had a DNC choice back in 2016, and they, you know, people might want to make that uh, might want to make that comparison and see how that worked out when the uh, when the party elites made the decision over, or at least certainly put a foot on the scales or a finger on the scales for one candidate. But uh, but that electability issue, I think that's a that word comes up an awful lot, and it's such a subjective thing. And I guess a concern that I have, and that some people have, I think rightly so, is that it can perhaps be a way to uh, make life harder, unfairly so, or to discourage, to discount women and minorities. And certainly we saw this when Harris dropped out. And now you take a look at the top people and they're all, you know, they're all very white, obviously. Um, And, you know, we have this, we have this specter of, you know, if Joe Biden is the nominee, these two uh, septuagenarian old white guys running, or if it's Michael Bloomberg, I mean, we have two New York septuagenarian billionaires fighting it out. And that seems troublesome to me. Do you have a, do you have any concerns along these lines? 
Yes, I'm deeply concerned about this. How can I say this the right way? <laughs> I think, <laughs> you know, I feel that good candidates who have uh, a proven track record uh, for for working for the public interest of the American people, like Kamala Harris, or even somebody like Mike Bennett or uh, Steve Bullock. How is it that, uh, you know, well, Mike Bennett is still officially in the race, but right. how is it that Bullock is out and Kamala is out? And Mike Bloomberg is in. I mean, of course, he's somebody who was a public servant. But, you know, there are problems with his record, with uh, stop and frisk and, uh, you know, having a special deal where he could run a third term, but nobody else. You know, in New York, people remember that. And so we're like, oh, yeah, that's great, but maybe not. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, that's uh, that's one. And then when you talk about Bloomberg, uh, you know, the fact that he's going to be self-funding. Right. So he's not actually going to meet the Democratic National Committee standards to make the debate state because he's not going to take donations from 200,000 people. And so if he's not going to do that, right, then then why is he running as a Democrat? You know, then what's happening to this process? It's being completely upended. And and in the meantime, these poor candidates who have been essentially, you know, running around like crazy people since March or February, you know, talking to people and convincing them to give and answering the phone for pollsters only to have somebody like Mike Bloomberg enter in the end. I mean, I think all about it is wrong. Yeah. And I, I would hope that the American people could, at least enough of them could, could see through that uh, attempt to, I would argue, to sort of buy the election and, and enough of them would, would reject that in the end, certainly. And I, I have issues with Mike Bloomberg for other reasons as well, but that certainly is on the list there, I think. Right. I mean, in terms of process, at least, I think we need to be very suspicious there and, and, uh, whatever his policy issues may be, uh, and so in terms of electability, I think, you know, if people like somebody like him, then, uh, you know, meaning somebody who enters late, self-funds and doesn't abide by the rules that all these other candidates have been struggling with to make the debate stage. I just think it's, you know, it's unfair. You know, I read somewhere uh, that not only would he be self-funding, but also he would not take a salary. And then <laughs> I saw on Twitter uh uh, David from, he said, no, please take a salary because you're working for us. Yeah, there you go. Right. Yeah. And and that's exactly it. You yeah. know, the president works for the American people. Yeah. So if you're not going to take a salary, this should not, you know, this sends all the wrong messages. Again, it's completely undemocratic. Yeah. Uh, and so, of course, he doesn't need the money, but that's not what this is about. Right. Yeah. I think that's the symbolic element of that is very, very important. Um, there's this, I guess you could say, a nightmare scenario for a lot of people on the left, and and I I certainly have some sympathy for it. That that out of this primary process will emerge a fiery progressive, and we have two to choose from: Elizabeth Warren or or Bernie Sanders, basically at this point, and they will they will galvanize the base, and then in the general election, Donald Trump will go on to eke out a narrow victory because. That's more than the American public, or at least in some of those swing states, are able to to handle stomach, what have you. And so it comes to that question of of matchups. And I guess do you do you worry about that nightmare scenario? And do you think there is something to be said about maybe someone more moderate, more centrist? Not not because we don't need transformative change, but because what we need more than anything else, I would argue from the left is to uh, make sure that Donald Trump is a one-term president. Or or is that a false dichotomy? Yeah, I would say it's a false dichotomy. Uh, and the reason why I say that is because uh, we really need a candidate who is going to offer us an alternative vision as opposed to a sort of a milk toast alternative that is uh, how can I say, middle of the road. I think we need something that's truly aspirational. And I'm not saying that I actually would necessarily support uh, Warren or or uh, Sanders. But what I am saying is that somebody who has a clear uh, aspirational vision makes people want to vote for them. I mean, I have met some people 
who are Warren supporters that are really, really gung-ho. And it's really interesting. They're super passionate. But when you talk to Biden supporters, and I know many of them too, they're all like, yeah, you know, he's not perfect. He's a little old and, you know, this, that and the other. But I really think he's the one who's going to win it. And I just think, what? Yeah. No, that's not it. You know, that's not going to win the race. <laughs> you know, if you're making excuses for your candidate, that's not the one. Well, well, I think, too, that I mean, that's how Donald Trump became president, right? Because he uh, had the, the passionate intensity of his followers. He was really for something. Now, I'm totally against it, but you, you couldn't help but notice that that energy, certainly. And I think I think there is a lot to be said for that, that you can't just be against somebody. You actually have to have a pretty good reason, uh, a pretty good case to make for yourself to the American public. Yes. Exactly. I agree with that. And so I I really I don't know how this is going to shake out because it's possible that we will have a brokered convention and we have four viable candidates, you know, in July. Uh, And I really hope not. But it's totally possible because at this point, I'm not quite sure how um, anyone is going to really overtake another. Although I do think that with impeachment hearings in the Senate in the new year, that might really damage the prospects for senators running for mm, yeah, president. Yeah. So how would you, how, how do you, I, I know you're, you're concerned and, and you focus a lot on, on uh, trans or on change, right? And how we can, how we can change and improve our system. We've talked to a lot of people about this in your podcast. And so I'm wondering, how do you view the, the most likely candidates in terms of their ability to be a real agent of, of positive change, especially, and I think it's important to keep in mind that no matter who wins, there's almost certainly not going to be a filibuster-proof majority for either party in the Senate, which is going to make uh, getting you know, big changes through uh, a, a very challenging undertaking. Yeah, that's definitely going to be challenging. Uh, I don't think that uh, it's going to be easy to continue to have uh, a divided house and Senate. And uh, I don't see how we will have a lot of transformative change in the government there. Having said that, I think a lot of the changes uh, that affect our everyday lives happen at the state level. So if you are, for example, for abortion rights, you know, it's probably not going to happen at the federal level, but you can make sure that your state no longer uh, punishes women for abortions or punishes doctors, you know. Uh, And so there is a lot of work that is still possible, uh, even if it may, may not be on the federal level. Yeah, I think that's that's a great point, because we tend to focus so much on the federal level, but oftentimes people have a much greater ability to be agents of change the closer they get to home. And I think that's something that a a lot of folks are insufficiently aware of, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Well, so another example that I'd like to point out right now, because the election, uh, Beto O'Rourke, even though he's dropped out uh, of the national race, he is helping races in Texas, state Mm -hmm. races, so they can turn as many um, seats as possible in the Texas state legislature so they can end voter ID laws, gerrymandering, and things like that. And those things really matter. They matter to your every day and to the way that your vote is counted. I think what could be better than that? Yeah. And I think that's my sense of things is that's where uh, Republicans have sort of gotten a jump on Democrats, or at least in the last decade they did. And they they push forth a lot of efforts at the state level to make some changes that benefited them and made it more difficult for a, a lot of folks to who would probably vote Democrat to vote. And now we're sort of seeing a, a bit of a, a bit of a reversal in that. I know Eric Holder uh, uh, is a big proponent of that, has been pushing for that, and it has the support of uh, President Obama and others and so forth. And so I'm hopeful that the Democratic Party as an institution is focusing more on those sort of efforts to kind of make it more of a a level playing field, I guess. Yeah, I am hopeful about that, too. So we'll see. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, uh, aside Aside from that, working on the local level or the state level, what else do you think that 
citizens should be doing or can be doing, you know, listeners can do to 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 be more uh, engaged and to really try to be agents of the sort of change that they feel is beneficial, whether they're, you know, whether they're conservatives or liberals. So I would say the first thing to do is to uh, be well-informed. And that sounds almost uh, lazy <laughs> to say, right? But yeah. what I really mean is that we really need to seek truth and speak truth, right? So we cannot, as as citizens, read the headlines of something and then, let's say, pass it on on social media without reading the article or to uh, accept something as a fact when it was actually written in an opinion piece. You know, I think we need to be really, really careful about how we gain our news, how we um, think about it. And I, and I strongly encourage everyone to uh, think on their own two feet as opposed, as opposed to letting somebody else do the thinking for them. Like, I really think we should not be listening to other people, how we think, what we think, how to vote, what to vote. You know, I think we really need to take the time and do this for ourselves. And I think we would have a very different kind of society if we were to do that. And granted, that will take a lot of time. <laughs> it will, you know, it will take a lot of time. It will take a lot of effort. So, for example, um, during the impeachment hearings, do watch a little bit of C-SPAN because that's raw, unfiltered, uncommented, you know, and 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 watch it for yourself and form your own opinion. Don't read the recap from uh, whichever news outlet that that will always have a bias, you know, because uh, that's that's normal. I mean, even in even with outlets that are meant to be neutral. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody absolutely. is truly neutral. Absolutely. I, 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 I so agree with that. And, you know, I think a lot of times we focus and understandably so on our rights as citizens. But maybe we often we, we don't think enough about our responsibilities and democracy requires for a lot of us, if it's if it's to work as as we would hope. Yes, I totally agree. So I think uh, the other thing that I would recommend is that we need to check in rather than check out. We need to stop being cynical, you know, uh, or we can remain cynical as long as we jump in and participate. You know, in addition to you know being good truth seekers and truth speakers, I think we should. Uh, and I've heard this several times from other people that I've interviewed on my show uh, is. Uh, that we should adopt a cause. You know, if there's something that we're passionate about, you know, something, every time you read something about an issue in the news, get involved in that issue. Something that really speaks to you, um, every little thing that you can do, it makes a difference. I really like that, adopt the cause. That That's great. Uh, so I get the sense that in the end, well, I mean, this has been a a dark period for liberals. There's no, no question about it. But I get the sense, though, that you're... Uh, you're at least uh, somewhat hopeful. Is that right? Yes. Yes, I am totally hopeful. I mean, some days are are darker than others, and there definitely have been times of despair. Uh, but I believe in human beings. I, I believe that uh, uh, humanity will prevail. I also deeply believe in the integrity of the American people. I think that we all want to do the right thing for the right reasons. And we, I think we, uh, we really love this place, um, you know, the United States. And I think we really want the best for it. And I think if we approach it from that standpoint, there is a lot to be hopeful for. Absolutely. Well, on that hopeful note, we will close. Mila Atmos, it's, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So, Trey, what do you think? Well, you enjoyed yourself immensely. Uh, <laughs> am I wrong? <laughs> no, yeah, I did have a good time talking with her. Absolutely, yeah. Well, and I and I have to say that Mila, she's obviously an articulate uh, human being. I really liked. I've never actually listened to her uh, show in full disclosure, so I looked it up and and listened to a little bit more about her. Uh, but I can tell that you've been a fan for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so there was a few things though that I think maybe the two of you. I don't know. You might have been a little bit in your left wing bubble, just slightly. Uh, <laughs> That's why you're here, Trey. Yeah, absolutely. So here, let me. So I'm just curious. I'm curious what you think about this because one of the things that I noticed, especially early on in the interview, 
was that she, uh, Mila a number of times pointed out how really the impeachment process is going to be really, in her words, quote, damaging to the Republican Party, uh, end quote, uh, because at the end of the day, there's just all this overwhelming evidence to convict the president. But then you guys went on to talk about how one of the things that uh, that Mila thinks that listeners should do is to actually call their representative. And I really found a lot of tension here because on the one hand, the suggestion is, look, there's this impartial thing that needs to be done. We gotta, we've got to both impeach. And I think where uh, uh, Mila disagrees with you is, is, is convict. But at the same time, she's arguing that those who disagree with her should, should turn in. Well, all these Republicans, they're not going to convict in large part because their districts don't, don't want them to. I, that seemed like there was a disconnect there to me a little bit, uh, Mike. Yeah. Well, I think her view would be that if people put aside their partisan blinders and, and you know, followed the hearings and, and got the information firsthand, that more of them would see that the totality, the totality of the evidence uh, would bring them to approve of, uh, you know, impeaching and removing President Trump. Uh, and that's that's uh, that that's not a partisan judgment, but just a judgment on a balance of the evidence. And, uh, you know, I I. I think there's something to that, but I recognize that I'm saying that from my own, you know, in my own partisan bubble, certainly. But there does seem to be a lot of evidence. And, you know, as you know, there's not quite enough for me. And I got to say, Trey, that I, I uh, talked to Ken earlier on the day that you recorded and he brought me a lot closer to the edge, actually. Uh, he started really uh, getting all law school professor on me, and, and uh, he, he brought me to the point where I'd almost vote to convict. But uh, but yeah, so, you know, in terms of it being bad for the Republican Party, I, I agree and I disagree with her. I agree in the sense that I think when we look back on what I hope is this bizarre aberration of Donald Trump in 10, 15, 20 years, we'll say, my God, what the hell was that? And what were some people thinking? But I think short term, no, I don't think it's going to hurt the Republican Party at all because there's a very strong, committed base for Donald Trump. And if you take a look at the approval, disapproval numbers, they haven't budged. So so in that sense, I disagree. I do think that the judgment of history will be that this was a deeply corrupt guy who finagled his way into office. And my God, that was not a good thing for the country. Now, and I hear that and I understand that because as as listeners know, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm giving the conservative point of view, but I'm, I'm not a Trump supporter on that front, um, which is Ken and I sometimes point out makes me a man without a country. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but the, the other part that was interesting to me is you guys were talking a lot about, well, who needs to be up against Trump? And and she kept going on about how we need this very transformative figure uh, because that's what everybody's going to want. And I just couldn't help wondering, well, isn't this the same exact language that we heard before? I mean, if the if the country really wanted some transformational progressive, they, they could have had it. And instead, they voted for Donald Trump. And it seems to me a little bit just to put blinders on, to keep thinking. And this is this is why I guess where I had my kind of my biggest uh, disagreement with you guys is you both seem to be putting a lot of faith that the American people, if they just get nudged right, are all going to agree with you. Well, I, I'd like to think that enough to make up 270 electoral votes are going <laughs> to agree, you know, but, 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 but no, I mean, I think the demographics work in the favor of my party. I think that's that seems to me to be just a matter of not a matter of opinion, but a matter of a matter of fact. And I do I do think that at least on a lot of these issues that the American people agree. But, you know, and there is well, a tension I agree with here. you, though, Mike, that I think that the, the Democrats have the 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 win on the front of like demographic votes, for example. But I'm talking about what I think. Uh, that uh, Mia means when she talks about this transformative change. I mean, you guys went into detail about how, well, you know, Bloomberg isn't the transformative change agent, and I don't, you know, disagree with you. Uh, But the fact that he is popular, the fact that... uh, that you have who's popular, who it is, I think indicates that the kind of the transformative left 
that's being suggested here yeah. is the one yeah. that's not going to be successful. So I don't disagree that Democrats don't have a win. I just don't think it's the Democrats that I heard being pushed yeah. when yeah. you guys no, were chatting. I, yeah. I hear what you're saying. And I think what uh, what would attract a, a strong majority of the American people would be somebody who is rhetorically like Barack Obama and also politically, because, of course, you know, he's a bit too centrist for a lot of the progressive left. And and that's sort of where my sweet spot is as well. So I, I the problem, though, it seems to me, is that the choices that are being offered are just not all that great because there's it's one thing to be uh, radical, to be truly transformative like uh, Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren. And here I would agree with you that I don't think that enough of the American public is okay with that. And I think, you know, if Sanders or Warren's a nominee, my bet is that Donald Trump gets ends up with a, a second term after a small electoral college majority. But but then when you look at the non-transformative candidates who are anywhere in the polls, that leaves us with two other people, right? Joe Biden, who has all kinds of other problems and is about as anti-transformative as it gets, you know. And, and then there's the other option is Pete Buttigieg, who I like for a lot of reasons, but a, a 37-year-old, almost entirely untested technocrat mayor from South Bend. That doesn't seem quite to fit the bill either, which is why – you know, I was I've been so disappointed by the fact that Cory Booker's going nowhere because it seemed to me he was the man for the moment. And yet it just it just didn't happen. No, I agree. And, and you know, we talked when we did the show uh, a few weeks ago about kind of my preference for Booker and, and all the hate mail I got over that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I agree. I think one of the reasons, Mike, that I often uh, find a lot of agreement with you is that you're a Democrat who doesn't fall all the way into kind of the Sanders uh, into Sanders land. And but when you guys were chatting in the episode, it just didn't I, I didn't feel like I, I heard the normal mic. <laughs> yeah. No, and I think you know, that's a great point, because the normal mic is, is the, the mic who talks to you or Jay or Kristen or, or Will. I mean, I definitely am a much more, I guess you could say, I wouldn't say combative necessarily, but certainly I will push people on things. And you're right. When I do interviews, it's more sort of letting the person talk, which is why. I'm so glad we're doing what we're doing now because I don't want to be the sort of interviewer who comes on and just grill somebody. Mm -hmm. But I feel like in the past, even when there were really great interviews, if it was me and another liberal person, there just wasn't enough of a counterpoint to really – make the interview the sort of thing that we try to do uh, as a kind of mission statement for, for the politics guys, which is why, you know, you're so important pushing back here because I, I do agree with you on, you know, on a number of these points. And certainly I'm not nearly as much of a progressive as Mila is, you know, I'm, I'm a, I call myself a Berkey and Democrat, right? right? So a transformative change by its very nature leaves me uh, suspicious because I, I don't have that much faith in the ability of technocrats to make a bigger, better world for us. And see right there, that's, you know, I, I think that's where we find a lot of uh, commonality. And, I, and in all honesty, I think that is what the, the Mila an analysts of the world are missing a little bit, uh, because I think she's I think that she makes some good points, especially talking about trying to bring home the local action. Uh, but when she when she's making some of her predictions about what's going to happen at the national level, um, I, yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to empirically disagree, just like the idea that we're going to have a brokered convention or I mean, the one that, uh, you know, she didn't see coming because the, the lag between the, uh, the coming out, uh, the number of articles of impeachment. Um, yeah. Well, but, yeah. And, you know, on a lot of things, Trey, I want her to be right. I hope she's right on a lot of things. Uh, but but I I my view of human nature is more, it's almost, maybe it's because I was raised Catholic. I don't know, but you know, I see human beings as, as fallen sinful creatures in a lot of ways. And so, uh, I I'm skeptical of, of big plans to change things that, and that's not to say that I don't think there are major problems in this country with inequality, with, uh, with, with a lot of issues really. But, but I guess my preferred way of going at them is, 
incrementally just because of my theory of human nature. And I, I think a lot of my a lot of my friends who are further to the left have a have a more optimistic, a more positive view of human nature. And, and almost in a way, this is going to sound weird, Trey, but it's something I think that they share with uh, yeah, your libertarian colleagues. You know, they, I, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm so happy that you we, that we're ending on this because that is actually the last point that I was going to have, and that and that's effectively that what I think makes me a weird libertarian is that I agree with you that I don't think the average person will always do the best overall thing, but rather just the, at, at the aggregate level, they'll end up doing the best thing we can hope for. Um, but, and, and I agree with you. And, and that's where I think at the end, we pro- maybe both of us disagree a little bit um, with Mila is that I don't think that if she had her way when it came to people's involvement, that the outcomes that she holds dearest to her heart would win um, not because there wouldn't be some that might not agree with her, but because I don't think even inside of her own party, uh, that she represents the majority. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, th- I think certainly if you asked her what, you know, what her ultimate goals were for public policy and government, I would be in almost in lockstep agreement with her on those goals. It's just a matter of what I think is the most efficacious way of reaching those goals. And that's, you know, that's why I'm a I'm a center left Democrat and not a progressive Democrat. But I'm 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 so glad that we have progressives out there because they're the folks who challenge me and make sure that I'm not kind of going too far, just basically giving up into my, you could call it cynicism. I would call it skepticism. And so, you know, I, I value them incredibly. And so I think it's great that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are out there talking about issues of social justice that I feel so strongly. And, 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 you know, that, that adds to the conversation in an important way. I just have a different view of how we are going to get there. Well, I say in, in kind of a close here, Mike, is is that I think actually that is what more than anything I wish that my libertarian friends could slowly but surely learn um, from Democrats is you, I think on the whole, they've been the party that's been very successful at moving towards their goals little pieces at a time. And I think oftentimes uh, those of us on the right, we, we, uh, we blow at that. Uh, and I think that's why we sometimes <laughs> lose because we want, we want the cake instead of being willing to settle for, you know, one yeah. piece of it at a time. And uh, so I have a lot of respect for both you and Democrats on that front. It's something I wish I could, I could bring to my own side. Oh, well, well, thanks so much. And thanks also, Trey, for taking the time to to join me to give that, you know, to give a, a kind of a conservative view to this. I uh, really appreciate it. I enjoyed being here, Mike. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you like what you heard. Listener support is what keeps the show going, and we truly appreciate it. When you become a monthly sustaining supporter of the show on Patreon, you don't just get our gratitude, you get a supporter's exclusive bonus episode each and every week. Also, supporters at various levels can get additional bonuses like Politics Guys gear and access to a special supporters-only Facebook group. To learn more about all this stuff, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can visit our website, politicsguys.com slash support. Subscribing to the show also really helps, as does sharing episodes. Word of mouth is, of course, the best advertising, and we really would appreciate it if you tell folks about the show. Leaving reviews and ratings on whatever podcast app you use is also greatly appreciated. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that at mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page where you can message us and we're reposting things throughout the week. It's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. Finally, we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Benji Fishman, and Andra Mask. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.